Thank you everyone for joining us. I am Alicia Swami. I'm here with my co-host, Eric Johnson, and together we are exposing mold. Keely is out today. She's got some important stuff to take care of, but we're here with Daniel Reutis from Human League. Daniel Reutis is from Australia. He has a podcast, blog, webinars. Um, He does some really great education content on some fabulous health concepts and topics. And today, We wanted to invite him on because we have some diverging views on uh, mold illness. And uh, Daniel, you have a cool webinar on your site that talks about mold. And uh, so you don't believe that mold is actually making people ill. You have some other ideas. And we'd love to discuss that um, if by chance. Yeah, sure. Um, Well, just a matter of years ago, I too believe that mold caused disease. And this is something that I taught at colleges and universities across Australia for over 10 years. And I practiced this way in my own clinic um, as a naturopath and nutritionist and treated people supposedly with mold-related illness for a very long time. And some of your listeners may be aware about the floods that we had here in Australia along the East Coast uh, earlier this year. It was quite um, some devastating floods. And it affected the city that I live in and um, further north and south along the east coastline. But following those floods, there was a lot of talk in the media about mold-related illness. And it seemed to me like there was some pretty outlandish claims being made by the media. And I thought, it's if I'm going to keep teaching this stuff to people, I better be damn sure that what I'm teaching is correct. And I looked back through the evidence and I changed my mind. I realized that there was probably something else going on, uh, making people ill. And put it this way, I don't have a dog in the fight. It doesn't matter to me whether or not mold causes disease or it does. I just looked at the evidence and based my opinion on what I found. And I think for a lot of people with mold-related illness, it can be very debilitating and it can be very hard to treat. And is that because we're barking up the wrong tree? Are we looking at the wrong thing? Are Are we blaming the wrong cause of the problem. And I think for me, it's very important that we look at this seriously because I'm all about helping people. I'm all about getting people better. And if what I'm saying is correct, then we have to rethink this approach about demonizing mold and going after mold. So what do you think is happening then? Um, If it's not mold causing illness, what is causing illness? Yeah, it's um, human beings causing it. <laughs> so we blame Mother Nature on everything. Um, we blame the human body as a cause of disease. We we blame Mother Nature, but we never blame humans and the stupid things that we do and the dangerous chemicals that we produce. So when I first started looking at this, I thought, right, how do we know that mold actually causes illness? And what we would need to do is look at any controlled experiments where mold or mold spores or mycotoxins have been exposed to a healthy animal or a healthy human and to see whether or not they get sick. And I looked for those experiments and I couldn't find them. So I'm not saying that they don't exist. It's just that the papers that I've been looking for um, to validate the claim that mold causes disease, I wasn't able to find. But what I could find was an association between mold and damp and um, humid conditions inside buildings or, or houses or offices. And what I found was that 
building material, modern day building material contains 300, 400 plus toxic chemicals. And when the conditions are damp and humid and the building material is compromised, it releases more toxic chemicals into the atmosphere than it otherwise would. And it just so happens that mold and fungi break down those toxic chemicals from really toxic chemicals into less toxic chemicals. So they're actually there doing a cleanup job. And I did find controlled experiments where people have been exposed to these toxic chemicals being leached or aerosolized from building material into the air. And when they inhale those toxic chemicals, well, I, surprise, surprise, I found that the symptoms that they get are identical to uh, what we say mold-related illnesses. So for example, like one of those toxic chemicals is formaldehyde. And when gyprock or uh, drywall or sheetrock becomes wet and damp, the amount of formaldehyde released from that is increased by over a thousand percent. And already in most houses, the uh, levels of formaldehyde in the rooms are almost above the acceptable levels. And if we're talking another thousand percent increase, that's quite a lot. It exceeds the acceptable limits. And when people have been exposed to aerosolized formaldehyde, they get upper respiratory tract systems, symptoms of the central nervous system, chronic fatigue-like symptoms, chronic inflammatory-type symptoms. And that's what I now think is probably going on, is that this, there's this chronic uh, exposure to toxic chemicals, and the mold just so happens to be there cleaning up our mess. Uh, are, have you been made ill by mold? No, because I don't think mold causes illness. <laughs> okay, so you've never had direct experience of being maybe in a mold, moldy building or damp building, as you guys call it, and have been made ill that way or whatever. There was some sort of association, but not. So you're not a mold sick person, basically. No. Okay. Okay. Um. So you know what's really interesting is that um. <laughs> You know, I was really passionate because I saw a post with a social media influencer and, you know, she was basically saying what you were saying, like mold doesn't cause illness. So I went and found uh, some, a pretty interesting team of people out in Australia, Dr. Cameron Jones, mycologist, microbiologist, who does say that mold does cause illness, Amy Skilton, a naturopathic doctor who was also made mold sick. Um, gone into a demented state um, and also believes that mold, you know, can cause illness. Uh, Nicole Bilsma, who is also a naturopathic doctor, PhD um, researcher, and also <laughs> has had 10 miscarriages because of a moldy building. So it's just, it's interesting that um, there's this divergent view. And, and we do often see this with people who have not been made sick by mold, um, that they don't believe it's real or, or there's no association. Um, and so it's, it, this situation is almost like you have to experience it to believe it because it's so crazy, right, Eric? I mean, what we go through as mold injured individuals um, is unlike anything else, I believe. Um, and so I, I'm just curious, you're saying that you've looked in the literature, you're not finding anything. So there's a million research studies that show that mold does cause issues. Um, and so I'm just curious, like, what databases are you looking into? We literally just had Dr. Cheryl Harding on who did mouse studies. She received a grant from the NIH, showed that inhalational stachybotrys toxic black mold actually caused anxiety, depression, brain issues, even the non-toxic spores, just the spore fragments, the skeletons caused illness and issues. 
Um, and so I'm just curious, like, where are you getting your information to say that there is no correlation? Um, well, there is a correlation. There is an association, but I don't believe that it's a causal one. Um, I haven't read the papers that you're describing there about your previous guest, and I would be interested to read these. And you know, the jury's not out for me. I'm always willing to um, reevaluate information as I come by it, but I have spent um, considerable time looking for this information. And there are experiments where um, mice have been exposed to so-called mold spores or mycotoxins that have been aerosolized. But there's some um, significant issues with these experiments in my perspective that I've found. Um, I don't know. Do you want me to talk about about those issues that I see? Yeah, we, we'd love to hear your perspective. I mean, we, we're just really open to hear what people think and believe because it's just, it's really interesting to, to learn more about different perspectives. Yeah. And look, I'm not trying to detract or um, belittle people's suffering here or trivialize it. Um, I understand that people are ill from being exposed to uh, mo- like in moldy and damp buildings, but is it really the mold? And as I said, there's um, many reasons why I, I don't think that's the case. But uh, yeah, I did have a look at many of these experiments. And so I'm not the only one that's saying this. Like there's a considerable uh, amount of literature out there where people far smarter than me are looking at this and going, well, there is no evidence to show that mold causes disease. But I did find these animal studies and essentially uh, they're not exposing them in, in a natural way. They're not creating, they're not growing the mold in a natural setting. They're actually creating an environment and growing mold um, in a way that purposefully uh, allows or promotes the production of um, high levels of mycotoxins by those fungal species. So the the um, the the matter. Sorry, I'm trying to cr- get my thoughts together here. It's still five a.m. <laughs> so uh, really, what that means is it's what the mold is eating that determines how toxic those mycotoxins are. And in these experiments where they exposed the mice to the mycotoxins, um, they put them in tubes. They restrain them. They often anesthetize them, and they put little cone-shaped devices over their snouts and blew um, mycotoxins, which were grown in a laboratory under controlled conditions where they gave them uh, various different food sources so that they would produce the most amount and the most toxic mycotoxins and then um, blow that into the faces of mice that were restrained. And they got some respiratory symptoms and they said, well, that proves mold causes illness. Um, but nowhere have I found an experiment that has put some mold that's naturally growing on a piece of building material and then put it in a cage and exposed the mouse to it. So it actually gets exposure, um, in a setting or an environment, which is similar to what we'd see in, in nature or in our home. Um, so there, it's very hard to draw any conclusions from those types of papers because there are experiments where I've found that they've taken so-called pathogenic mold, fed it all different types of things, and in some instances, it produces a lot of mycotoxins. In other instances, it produces none. So it's, it's dependent on the food source. Um, so we can't blame the mold. It's not its fault. If it gets fed poisonous material and it starts to break it down, 
Um, a, a byproduct of that is a mycotoxin, right? Um, so it's not the mold's fault. If it was eating a tree or some breaking down dead animal or some some decaying organic matter, would it still produce the same effect? And I don't think anybody's looked at that. So does it reflect what's happening in nature? And those animal studies, in my opinion, don't. Um, I don't think so I've I, ever I seen a um, mold theorist claim that it was purely natural mold that was doing this. It was always in combination with a chemical, like Gaussio's gas from the 1800s, where it was growing on the wallpaper and uh, emitting trimethyl arsine into the uh, atmosphere just by going on the arsenic wallpaper, mm -hmm. the uh, green-tinted wallpaper, and producing something that mold wouldn't normally do. So if you look at Dr. Shoemaker's books, or any of us who have been talking about mold for all these years, we always say that mold is breaking down some kind of human-produced chemical, which has mm -hmm. made it more toxic. But of course, in order to find that, you have to look at the mold. And since it's different chemicals, you it doesn't work to blame the chemical because it's going to be a different chemical depending on what the mold can get a hold of. So you have to look at the mold, where it's making people sick, and then find out what it's feeding on. Yeah. So I can use an analogy here. If I want to make some, like last week, I bought an ice cream machine because I wanted to make some homemade raw milk organic ice cream. And I did. And it was delicious. But when I ate the ice cream, it was really tasty because I put great ingredients in. If I get an ice cream making machine and um, I put in cream and milk and some chocolate and a bit of honey and whatever else, it's going to make a beautiful ice cream. But if I replace the chocolate with cow poo and then I eat the cow poo ice cream and I get sick, am I going to blame the ice cream making machine? <laughs> so I see mold as the ice cream making machine. It's the ingredients that are coming in which determine the output um, of these mycotoxins. And even then, does the mycotoxin um, pose a threat in that setting where there's um, water damage to a human? And again, I can't find any evidence to show that it does. So yeah, it's, it's very difficult for me to, to come around to that perspective that mold causes illness if there's no... So it sounds no, like um, you've basically shifted the argument over to saying... That our claims was that this is just purely natural mold. And I don't recall anybody ever saying that. Mm. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of Dr. Jack Thrasher, Dr. No. Jack Dwayne Thrasher, and a prominent immunotoxicologist who was head of the um, Chemical Injury Information Network back in the 1990s. Mm. And he was completely focused on chemicals. I mean, mm. that, was the, that was the organization, Chemical Injury Information Network. And when we mm proposed that mold, toxic mold, could be a factor, they absolutely would have none of that. His primary culprit was formaldehyde. So it's exactly mm. what you're proposing, that there's mold in houses and there's formaldehyde and you put the two together and it's really bad. But his premise was that it really is the formaldehyde all by itself. And the mm. different types of molds, they're just bystanders and really have nothing to do with the true culprit, which is formaldehyde. And during Hurricane um, Katrina, there were a lot of FEMA trailers that were rushed down there to provide housing, and they were loaded with cheap building materials, tons of formaldehyde, and these people in these trailers were getting sick. So he started a huge fuss over the formaldehyde. This became national news, and uh, the formaldehyde got the blame. Well, over time, Dr. Thrasher came to realize that the formaldehyde wasn't really making people sick. 
unless there was mold present. So he took more and more of an interest in mold. And finally, he kind of dropped out of formaldehyde and became a mold expert. So he's, he did a fair number of papers on the subject. And it's very difficult to put humans deliberately into an environment where you can test this. So we have to look at incidents where this has happened and try to see what we can learn from it. And it turns out that it's just a couple of miles away from me here in uh, Truckee. There was an apartment complex. It was built with these same kinds of cheap materials. And people started getting sick, diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome, couldn't recover even if they were removed from the building. So they wound up being classified as cases of classic chronic fatigue syndrome. In some cases, they wound up being treated with uh, experimental antiviral drugs and amplogen, an immune modulator that's being tried out on chronic fatigue syndrome. And these people were blaming the formaldehyde, not attaching importance to the mold. Dr. Thrasher came and investigated this apartment complex, found that the formaldehyde was elevated. But there again, the authorities are saying, but it's not enough to cause harm. It doesn't cause harm in other instances. So um, this really led people into blaming the formaldehyde, trying to sue the apartment complex, which fell flat because they had no basis for it. So there again, people are getting sick, not getting any help. The focus on formaldehyde did them no good. Dr. Thrasher kind of backed out of the situation. So they hired a mold expert to come up. And sure enough, he found toxic mold. There were um, plumbing leaks under the building, and the pipes had been wrapped with the um, paperback insulation, and there was toxic mold growing all over these these pipes. So this was removed. It was completely remediated, and people stopped getting sick. So even though this wasn't an official controlled study, we have a specific incident where formaldehyde got the blame. The top experts tested it, were convinced that this was the fact, and yet removal of the mold is what corrected the, I mean, yeah, corrected the situation. And Dr. Thrasher became an extremely ardent mold believer after that and put out all kinds of papers on the subject, and he passed away. But his papers are still online, and you can see how much importance he attached to toxic mold from then on. Yeah, I'd be interested to have a look at his papers. Um, formaldehyde, and it's interesting that he changed his view on that. Formaldehyde is just one of the only, or one of three or 400 chemicals, which we know are present in building material. Um, there are other things that are aerosolized at the same time when building material gets wet, like toluene and benzene and these toxic chemicals. So there's a combination of exposure here. It's not just one chemical. We can't just test one chemical and go, oh, it wasn't enough because there's so many of these other chemicals. And we know that when people are exposed to them in isolation or combination, that they, they cause illness. We have um, documented evidence from controlled trials there. Oh, absolutely. Um, but we don't like, have uh, that the uh, flame retardants in carpets, uh, polybrominated yeah. diphenyl ethers. Yeah. I mean, these are really toxic, bad things. Mm. But uh, strangely enough, I was involved in a sick building incident. Mm-hmm. where people were getting sick in a very specific part of the building, mm-hmm. but it was all carpeted and the carpet got the blame, but it didn't really make sense because people all through the rest of the building weren't getting sick. So come to find out there was toxic mold growing in the carpet in the specific area where people were getting sick. So yeah, I'm sure the um, flaming retardant was a contributor, but without the mold, people simply weren't getting sick. Yeah. And it's interesting because as conflicting um, reports in the literature. There are instances where people, like observational studies, where 
people get sick when there's mold present and they remediate it and the problem doesn't go away. There's also uh, instances in the literature where people are getting sick living in damp or water-affected buildings or even working in them and there's no mold and people still get mold-related illness. Um, I've found papers where it was like a school in Sweden, I think it was, and students were getting sick with so-called mold-related illness. They tested the air and the surfaces in the school and they found that there was mold and they said, well, this must be the problem. Um, so the students left the school and went somewhere else and they were um, continuing to remain ill. Um, but when they went to their houses and tested their houses, they had um, mold present in their homes. But it turns out that the amount of mold in the uh, students' homes was less than what was in the school. So there's all of these conflicting sort of reports. Um, there's also instances where people were getting sick with mold, so-called mold-related illness. The scientists went there and investigated. They didn't find any mold. They found water-damaged building material. And when they remediated it, the problems went away. So, yeah, it's, it can be very confusing, I think, for a lot of people. But the common factor, the common denominator there out of all of these conflicting reports is that there's humidity and there's dampness. So we, first and foremost, even dampness, damp air has been associated with illness. Um, and there's some like chem chemicals that can occur in the, uh, in the air, like is it nitrous dioxide, dioxide, nitric dioxide, I think it is now. Sorry, my brain's still half asleep. Yeah. Sulfur dioxide. And when those chemicals come in contact with moisture, say our respiratory tract, we breathe them in, they get converted to um, nitric acid and sulfuric acid and potentially has the uh, capacity to cause respiratory issues. So there's all these confounding factors. Oh, yeah. But how do we Bacteria know can put out hydrogen sulfide, which can drop people instantly. Yeah, it can produce a, a toxic waste product. But why is the bacteria producing that? It's got, you've got to look at the environment. And that's what that, I'm saying. We have to look at the environment. Um, and, and if we are saying that it is mold, then how do we uh, account for these other toxins just naturally occurring in the air, um, which obviously when there's stagnant air, they can build up to higher levels and we can inhale that chronically. Um, how do we, how do we um, differentiate between the effect that the um, chemicals are causing being off-gassed from the building material? Um, from these chemicals in the air and, and from the mold. And I don't think anyone's ever done that either, differentiated between what percentage of this illness is um, being contributed to by each of those things. Yeah, there's been a definite lack of interest in research into this phenomenon. So as you say, uh, there's not a lot of studies. There's not much evidence out there. Mostly what we've got are a lot of sick people getting really horribly ill and then getting to the point where they point specifically at what they believe the culprit is, and it turns out to be trichothecine-producing toxic molds. Now, this happened in um, a hospital in Quebec City, Canada, where the medical professionals were getting sick. And at this time, in the 1980s, mid-1980s, the only study said that on stachybotrys, the T2 trichothecine-producing molds, said that if you took people out of the environment, they would recover. So that became sort of the standard. And yet these people, these medical professionals in this hospital, they knew it was a sick building, but they didn't know what. They took them out of the building and about 20% of them did not recover. So this called for a little further study. 
And the culprit that showed up was Stachybotrys charterum. Actually, it was called Stachybotrys atra at the time. They changed the name just to keep things confusing. But that really brought attention to maybe there's something special about this toxic black mold that's worth looking into. And over time, more and more examples showed up that when people failed to recover, there seemed to be permanent damage from these special kinds of toxic black molds. So there you have a confounder because there's a lot of black molds out there, aspergillus, Mm. and people remove themselves from aspergillus and they typically recover. And even when it's stachybotrys, as you say, it doesn't always make them sick. So there seems to be a combination of the stachybotrys plus some environmental chemical. And the synergistic effect is what's doing the permanent damage. Like in the hospitals, they use all kinds of solvents and uh, cleaning fluids that are, you know, these uh, betadine, these soaps that are very, very powerful. And a lot of people get sick just from that. Yes. So you combine that with a toxic mold and who knows what's happening. But our, our premise here is that because people are pointing at the, the toxic mold, at the we, we're not scientists. We're just people who got sick and we're going, that's the stuff. It's making us ill. And when it gets removed, we do better. And it turns out over and over again to be these toxic black molds that we'd like to get more research into it because we, we believe that they are somehow causing chronic illness. We'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsors. Home Cleanse, formerly known as All American Restoration, is a company that specializes in improving indoor air quality through proper mold remediation, offering services nationwide. You can visit them at homecleanse.com to learn more. The Mold Guy performs mold sampling and testing for homeowners, renters, and businesses. Please visit themoldguyinc.com to learn more. Black Diamond Services provides solutions to the unforeseen challenges that can affect homes and families with no out-of-pocket costs. Services include temporary housing relocation and mold test referrals for homeowners. Visit blackdiamondservices.com to learn more. Great Plains Laboratory provides toxic exposure testing to those living in compromised environments. Tests include the Mycotox panel that tests for mycotoxins in urine samples and the Envirotox panels tests for environmental chemicals in the urine and provides an overall metabolic snapshot of a patient's health. Visit gp-labs.com to learn more. Thank you again for your sponsorships. It is integral to our ability to serve our community and to improve the quality of life for all. Maybe one day there will be a, a controlled trial that shows this and we can say for certain that it does. But what if it doesn't? What if it actually doesn't? And we're uh, blaming the wrong thing. We're blaming, it's like walking into a supermarket and we see an, uh, in aisle three, there's, a, there's some spilled milk on the ground and we see the checkout person there with a mop and bucket cleaning it up. And we say, oh, look, look how much mess this person made. But she didn't make the mess. She's just cleaning it up. So that's what I think the mold is doing is there to clean up the problem. And when you remove yourself from that situation, yes, you're removing yourself from the mold, but you're also removing yourself from the toxic environment. Um, When when I've had a look at this, um, I found a paper. It was published in maybe 2007, I I think, from memory. I might be wrong. But they um, did expose healthy humans to aerosolized mold spores. Um, And it was over like three days. 
And I think they were inhaling like 600,000 mold spores for six minutes, over, like three times a day for three days, I think from memory. And none of them got sick. And that's the only controlled experiment in humans that I can find where people have been exposed to mold and there was no um, disease resulting from that exposure. And I know people say, well, the exposure wasn't long enough and there's all these reasons why it didn't cause illness. Um, but if that's the case, how do we know? How do we know that the exposure wasn't long enough? Um, where's the data for that? And I guess that's all I'm really looking for is, is the data to back up that claim. That well, mold that's mold. exactly the position Dr. Thrasher had back in the 1990s, mm. where these all these toxic chemicals, these pesticides, these flame retardants, formaldehyde, all these horrible things, and he didn't want to accidentally blame an innocent bystander, toxic mold. But if you adopt that attitude that we shouldn't look at it because there's so many other things, then we never find out if there really is a toxic mold. And that's exactly what happened in the sick buildings is all the chemicals got the blame and mold wasn't even on the radar and stayed off the radar because people wanted to be cautious about what they were looking into. And it wasn't until they finally encountered enough stories of people pointing at this mold that they looked a little further and found that certain types of toxic mold, they are so bad that they do have the capacity to suppress immune function and leave you wide open to a cascade of secondary problems, chemical reactivities, infections, reactivated viruses, and it's that cascade that does the damage. But to find it, you still have to look at the mold. Yeah. And there needs to be controlled trial experiments done here to show this. And that's that's the sort of perspective that I'm coming from. I can't say for sure that it does or it doesn't. All I can say is in those environments, there's these toxic chemicals and they're known to cause illness. Um, and unfortunately, uh, when we're looking at mold and we blame it, there's this association here. And we, we see the mold growing and people are ill, but there are other things going on. So this is my question is how do we, how do we know how much is being contributed by the chemicals? How much is being contributed by the um, to toxic chemicals in the air, like sulfur, sulfur dioxide? And how much do we know is being caused by the mold? Well, so far, like, from the, the research that I can find, there, there is nothing to show that um, exposure to mold or mold spores even is able to cause illness, but I can definitely find evidence for the contrary. Um, so even if mold caused disease, even if it did that, would it still cause an issue if it didn't have access to those toxic chemicals? If it didn't, then we well, need to address turns out the, the underlying cause, Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, in fact, what brought this to the attention of researchers is that moldy hay was making horses sick and the people handling the hay were getting sick. Hmm. So they knew that this was um, mold growing in a natural environment. This was before World War II. So there wasn't any uh, pesticides or flame retardants or any modern chemicals involved. It was just the stachybotrys plus the hay. So they knew it had this toxic capability. Um, so I'm not saying that all molds are bad. Aspergillus is all around. It's all over the wood. It's kind of normal to have it in our environment. Mm -hmm. But we have evidence that there are certain types of mold that even in their natural state with no other chemicals involved are still capable of causing this type of illness. And these are the ones we focus on. Yeah, I think we have to be cautious using that word um, causes because in order to show that something causes something else, 
um, we have to do an experiment where there's a dependent variable and an independent variable. Um, and that's the only way that we can prove cause and effect. So just by doing an association study and, and seeing, oh, yes, there was mold there, um, we can't draw any firm conclusions from that, that it was a causal factor. Um, I think we can. I mean, just as the um, veterinarians saw the horses getting sick, I mean, they didn't have to deliberately expose the horses to more mold and do an experiment. They could see this is what the horses are eating. This is the toxic mold. Toxic mold was causing the illness of the horses. So I think it's pretty safe to go ahead and say that. Yeah, I, I don't. To me, that wouldn't be enough. Like just well, that because it's a, I would want to see it. In it's a not really allowed to do toxic experiments on humans that kind of went out with the uh, the Nazis. And now that we know that this toxic mold from animal studies has these immunosuppressive and inflammatory capabilities, we can't really put humans in harm's way by doing these kinds of experiments that would generate the abstracts that would validate it. So at this point, we still have to look at animal studies and we have to look at all the times when people did this experiment accidentally by being in a moldy place in a, a sick building and then analyze what it was in that building that made people sick and get our information that way. Yeah, um, I hear what you're saying, Eric. They did an experiment in humans not so long ago. I um, just mentioned that they did it in 2007. Yeah, so, I'd like to see um, that because that was many years after it would have been unethical to perform that kind of experiment. That's right. So th there is that data. And that's what makes me question what's actually going on here. Um, so the because this is what I'm saying, there's so many confounding factors. There's like this big melting pot of stuff in, in and we're mixing it around and there's all these potential possibilities. So in order to tell which one is actually the problem, we have to take out each of those individual components and assess it. Uh, in a controlled environment to... Uh, in the study, do you remember which type of mold they were using? Yeah, it was... Um, I can probably pull it up. There was a couple of different molds that they were exposing people to. And it was the so-called pathogenic, a couple of pathogenic molds. Uh, let me see here. Um, I was also going to say, there's instances of um, people being exposed to these damp and um, humid conditions in, in rooms, and not everybody gets sick. So only some people become ill and others don't. And there's various sort of hypotheses as to why that's the problem or why people do and don't get sick in those instances. But this may be a case of toxic load. So people who have a very high toxic load or toxic burden, if they've been nutritionally deficient for a while or they've been exposed to very high levels of chemicals um, throughout their life in other situations, we know that those chemicals can build up in the body. And if you've already got a very high threshold or, or um, level in your system, and then you get exposed to more in a damp, humid environment, it's like the um, cup that overflows the 44-gallon ga drum. Yeah, the 44-gallon drum is already full just below the brim, and we come along and tip a cup of water on, and now it overflows, and we go, oh, that was the thing that, that was the problem. Um, and those people get sick. But people who haven't been exposed to these toxins to the same extent have a lower um, total toxic burden or accumulation of toxins in their system. They get exposed to these things and they don't become ill. So that would explain why we see people in some areas in these damp, humid environments becoming ill and others not, rather than someone having a strong immune system or 
like having a genetic susceptibility or something to mold. Again, um, those things I haven't seen any um, sort of evidence or proof for that. Any studies? Any peer-reviewed abstracts? Yeah, that's right. Um, all we've got are anecdotal stories. We've got our experience. We've got examples where people have gotten sick in proximity to mold colonies, and people at a distance did not. But uh, according to our institutes and the academic mind, that wasn't a controlled study, so it doesn't mean anything. Mm. But the uh, one particular high school that I can recall, the flat top roof was generating huge ice dams and leaking. Mm. It got a uh, loader to knock off the uh, ice dams and damage the outer wall of the school. So they didn't know it at the time, but they created a leak. So water was pouring down the outer wall of this school. And the teachers in this school, whose desks were directly next to this wall, became chronically ill. They never did recover. And teachers at a distance, the same room, did not. So, of course, the teachers who didn't get sick, they thought they were milking the system, faking it, that they weren't really ill. When they tore open that wall, they found a colony of Stachybotrys directly adjacent to these teachers' desks. So we have a, a model, if you believe in toxic mold, for how proximity plays such a large factor that they could have got a dose that put them over the edge and that people across the room did not. But this definitely didn't fit the rain barrel uh, theory of the time. The toxic mold disperses evenly throughout a room, so everybody had the same dose. You could clearly see by the pattern of illness, that those who were closest got the sickest, those who either were at a distance or realized that the room was making them mildly ill and got out, they didn't get sick at all. And that would also hold true for the chemical um, perspective as well. So the sure. closer you are to a chemical source and or the further away you are, the more or less exposure that you have. Um, so what they did is they focused so much on the rain barrel effect and the idea that it was anything and everything, the sum total of lifestyle, um, poor dietary choices, possible drugs, that they never even bothered to look hard at the circumstance and realize, well, if we just kept looking, we would have found a toxic substance right here close to them that has the immunological capacity to produce this type of illness. So we have to beware of the toxic soup theory derailing us from making new discoveries yeah and i i guess the thing is um if we do these investigations where people fall ill and then we test the environment and we find something that we think is toxic well that's not the final step to prove whether or not there's a cause and effect relationship there we have to take it one step further and i see this quite often in um, the scientific papers they say we have sufficient um evidence of association to prove causation. <laughs> and I think, hang on a second, why is it that um, when we do this observation, we find this mold or whatever we think is causing the issue, we must then take it away, isolate it away in a controlled setting, and then expose humans or, or animals to it and see if it causes an issue. Um, because if we've got these, say, chemicals from the building material, chemicals in the air, um, which is like the sulfur dioxide and the nitric dioxide, and the mold, um, wouldn't we want to evaluate each of those three things individually and then work out which one's actually the most positive or the, the most pathogenic? 
Um, what if mold was only responsible for one percent of the problem, and the chemicals were responsible for ninety-nine percent? What if it was well, as you say? We need to look what at if- the situation and take all the variables into account, so we make sure that nothing is overlooked. I mean, yeah. if chemicals are a strong component of this, of course, we we need to know. But uh, you talk about isolating the agent possible study. Well, it turns out that stachybotrys and toxic molds, it's metabolically expensive to produce these, these secondary metabolites, these toxins, and they don't always do it. And they require very specific conditions and substrate in order to even produce a toxin. And when they first started that's studying stachybotrys, there, right? they removed it, they put it in a Petri dish and they grow it and found out that it wasn't toxic at all. Okay. So it needed to have the uh, right, um, all the right elements for it to grow. And one more thing, it needed a competitor. Because if it doesn't sense the presence of something that it doesn't like, it still doesn't produce toxins. It's called an allelopathic response. So the way, the methods that they were using to try to study this guaranteed that they never found anything. So they kind of had to go back to the example of, well, the horses are eating the hay and they're getting sick and we know this is happening. So we have to look at all the conditions under which this effect is is resulting. Yeah, and I think that point that you made that it's the substrate that's um, important. Well, I would agree. It is the substrate which is the most important thing. What is the mold growing on? What is its food source? Um, if we grow it on something that doesn't have any of these toxic compounds or glues or chemicals or solvents or whatever, um, do people still get ill? So typically, why... no. Typically, Sorry, not. What was that? As you say, they typically do not. So that would natural show that mold, not mold does not seem to be the culprit. So it's not but the in combination with I'm chemicals. Saying. But here was the interesting thing. You know, Dr. Thrasher and I, we started going, okay, the chemical, or it's just as important to have a chemical involved as it is the mold. But over time, when you see one particular mold, like stachybotrys, cause illness in conjunction with different chemicals, in one instance, a flame retardant, in another, pesticides, in another, formaldehyde, mm-hmm. you'll wait. The common denominator was the mold. So that kind of throws it back into the ball, into the court of, of the, uh, the mold. What's it doing? Well, Mother Nature's only got several things that it can utilize and microorganisms that it can utilize to clean up a toxic sludge pile. So it's got fungi, bacteria. That's really it. There's not a lot of other things that can um, break down these toxins. And Mother Nature ultraviolet. does this. Sorry? Ultraviolet from the sun. Well, uh, yeah, ultraviolet rays can degrade some of these compounds as well. But this is Mother Nature's cleanup crew. So just because there's all these toxins there um, and we see the mold there, again, it doesn't mean that the mold's causing the issue. The mold, in my perspective, is bioremediating the toxins. And we have also proof of it that in um, controlled experiments, mold is grown on building material with varying different degrees of toxins in it. And the mold growth and mold toxin production or mycotoxin production is dependent on the chemicals in that substrate. So the if we took those chemicals away and the mold's not toxic, so the mold just being there in and of itself and it doesn't cause an issue, that shows that it's not the mold and it's got everything to do with the environment and what it's eating. And if that's the case, if if we continue to say, point the finger at the wrong thing, and we say it's the mold, it's the mold, and we never address the real elephant in the room, which I think is 
the exposure to these harmful chemicals. Um, the problem is just going to remain there for people. So we're never going to, to address that true underlying factor. Well, if you blame all the chemicals, then you never discover the mold. Now, this debate went on decades ago, and uh, the academic mind seems to always want to shift it over to the toxic soup theory, or that uh, it's the chemical rather than the mold. But there was a pretty easy way for a hypersensitive person to determine this, and that was simply take a sample of the mold out to a pristine location and see if they could reproduce the effects. And so many people have done that now and are hypersensitive to the, to the mold itself. And it's been tested. And they know what mold it is. You can put it under the microscope. You can speciate it. You can find out what toxins it's producing. And it is indeed the trichothecene producing molds. So we know that we can reproduce our illness without these chemicals involved just by this simple experiment of taking a sample. But of course, doctors don't recognize that because they didn't do the study. Yeah. Have those papers been published anywhere? Because I'd be interested to have a look. Um, it's been, well, published in blogs and books. And people have done this experiment thousands of times. So we, we publish in the forms of writing about it. But mm. to a doctor, that's not peer reviewed. And it wasn't a controlled study. So it's meaningless. Yeah. I, well, I think it's, I hear what you, sorry, Alicia. Well, I'm just curious because, um, People can get well in a remediated home. They'll find mold in their home. They'll remediate it, take the mold out, and some people will get well, right? And but the toxins are all still there in the home. There's still the toxic materials in the building and everything. So that's like the toxic thing. The chemicals like just don't hold up to for me. And for people who don't get well in that building or whatever after the remediation, there is evidence. There is scientific research showing that mold is causing an immune system re reprogramming effect that now you are primed to this stuff that even minute exposure can put you over the edge into an inflammatory state. Um, and, th and, th and that's why I feel like it's so important for professionals who teach others about molds. Like if you didn't go through this and you're not a person that is hypersensitive, like it, it's hard for me to follow them because they don't really understand what's going on because there's so much minutia in this illness that it's insane. Like it, it's, it's hard to study because as we know, and as other researchers have told us, number one, there's no grant funding for it. Government doesn't want to put any money into it. Number two, you need to have a biological war warfare type of setting laboratory in order to conduct these type of studies because T2 trichothecene mycotoxins are extremely toxic and they have been used in biological warfare. So it, it's it's really kind of a, a sticky situation that we're in that patients are falling ill day after day. And if we continue working with physicians or people that are telling us that, oh, because it's not in peer-reviewed literature, your illness does not exist and it's because of toxins. Well, if people are remediating their homes of the mold and they're getting better, there's still toxins around. So was it really the toxins or was it really the mold? So it's these type of situations that we think about. And again, Ryan, we, we really do appreciate your perspective and we appreciate you and your bravery for coming on today to provide your information because we, at some level, we do have an agreement here. We do understand that, you know, we always talk about an effect. There's things going on in the environment. Mold is processing our pollution basically and making harmful toxins that are toxic to us, but it's their form of detox, right? They're the microbes form of detox. So we need to figure out what's going on here. but. What we do see uh, patient report after patient report is people pointing at the mold. There's people like me, like Eric, there's a ton of people out there who can point 
and go into a room and say, mold is right there. You can go and speciate it and see that it's a T2 trichothecine producing mold. Uh, we had Amy Skilton on, who is a naturopath from Australia. And she is one of those hypersensitive people. So if you want to go ahead and experiment with her, I would love for you guys to team up together and kind of figure out what's going on here because patient reporting versus what we see in the literature, it's not, it's not there yet. And so if we wait for science to catch up to our realities, we're all going to be dropping dead here. So it's like, we're, we're trying to be proactive and be progressive here. And we do encourage, I mean, we're, Exposing mold is contacting the NIH, the CDC, the EPA, anyone who has any sort of clout, Stanford, OMF Foundation. We're telling everyone about this. Like, look, this is what patients are reporting, and we would love for you to look into this. But for some reason, we're getting hit with an obstacle where I don't know if it's too expensive or this is too much of an, a weird situation to look into. Um, but, you know, I think the the, 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 the progression here, I think really is going to be coming from the patient advocates. So groups like us who are investing into research, into looking into these phenomenons, I think are going to be the next step. I think people like you, Daniel, who are posing these questions, I hope that this is another measure of your institution where you're looking into this stuff. You're maybe doing your own research. I feel like we're so spearheaded and so just stuck by what governments can give for grants, but I feel like we really need to start doing these kind of grassroots type of research and studies to see what's going on because there's so much weird stuff happening in the world today. And we're still focused on viruses, right? It's like, why are we still focused on viruses? There's so much other crap going on that we really need to look into. Mm. Yeah. I hear what you're saying. Um, so my question to that would be when they remediate the house, um, or the mold, are they also removing the source of the damp? And are they also removing the compromised building material? And if so, then we have confounding variables there. And we need to be able to show which one of those variables was the actual underlying cause. Um, so again, I'm- Well, there I'm again, not... uh, what covers that one is that people realize that they're still sick in their, their house and they take contaminated possessions out with them to a new location and get sick. So they realize that there was something on their possession that's so bad that it traveled with them, even without all the other stuff that's in the house. So by chasing that back to what specifically got on their possessions, we kept coming up with toxic mold over and over again. Yeah, there could be anything on that thing. And that's that. So we're actually doing that experiment. It. It's just that it's not under a controlled environment where an academic can write a paper on it. Yeah. Um, I think it's important for us to uh, think critically here about what's going on, because what we're seeing is this uh, association and the association we're using as proof of causation. And as I mentioned before um, about the ice cream maker analogy, the, the, the mold to me is just the ice cream maker. It's not the thing having the effect. It's just there to do, to do a job. It's just there to clean up a mess. Um, like there are instances where they've grown mold on these toxic building materials and they've measured the amounts of these um, toxic chemicals being aerosolized into the air. And what they've found is that there's a reduced release of toxins into the atmosphere. So the mold, we know that it uses formaldehyde and things as a fuel source. So if the mold doesn't have exposure to those chemicals, is the problem still a reality? If it's not, what that tells us is the way we are building our homes, the construction material that we're using, 
is harmful. That's the underlying factor. It's potentially harmful to our health. And that highlights a deeper societal issue, which, which shows us that the houses that we're living in are not conducive to good health. So we need to modify the way in which we're building our houses and how we're living. If we just blame the mold, we're going to continue living in these toxic houses, building with toxic building material, which we know causes illness in people. And I don't think anything will ever change. If we just go after the, the mold, which is a sort of the superficial layer, it's like the fireman at the, at the house fire. Every house fire, we see a fireman there. But do we say that it was the fireman who started the house fire? If we keep blaming the firemen and say, fire the firemen, we don't need them anymore. They keep making all these fires. We're going to be in a bit of a, a bit of strife here. Just about everybody who goes through the toxic mold experience does become chemically sensitive and points at all kinds of chemicals. And if, it tries from then on to reduce all chemical exposure, the uh, air fresheners, the, I mean, hairspray, um, gasoline, mm. people complain, but they weren't sick like that until they were exposed to toxic mold. Same as their house. It was exactly the same house. There was nothing weird about it. It didn't make anybody sick until the mold grew. And that was the catalyst that made the difference. So what do you focus on? The uh, chemicals that didn't change or the mold that did? Yeah, and there are um, experiments. I don't know if they're scientific. Just I think it's also important to um, make it known that just because something's published in a scientific journal doesn't mean that it's science. Um, it needs to be an experiment and there's a specific procedure that must be uh, followed to um, show that there's a cause and effect. So this is a scientific method. So the, uh, if we just see something, we just observe something, and then we write about that and put it in a paper, it doesn't mean that it's scientific evidence. It's just epidemiological data. And from that, we would need to take that epidemiological data and then do the other proper investigations um, to establish a cause and effect. But there are instances where people have fallen ill with so-called mold-related illness and the building biologists or the scientists or whoever have gone out to the home or the building and they found water damage but no mold. And the people were falling sick with these sort of mold-related illnesses. So in the absence of mold, people are still falling sick with the same symptoms. Um, well, Dr. Shoemaker has shifted his focus over to uh, filamentous bacteria, actinomycetes, and he says that um, these produce toxins as well, and it, this may be more of a problem than the mold. But still, in order to find that, you, what you, you need a starting point. And that typically goes with people saying, wow, I got some water damage. This mold grew. Will you look into it, please? And this is what our academics, our institutes are refusing to do, saying, well, you have no evidence. It's not in the literature, and there's no studies showing that what you say is, is proven fact. Yeah. So how many more people do we need to get sick and point at the mold before they keep looking at whatever it is the person is pointing at and figure out what it is instead of saying that, um, well, it's not in our literature, so therefore there's nothing to look into. Yeah, and I, I certainly think that there needs to be more investigation done. And if there was some evidence to show that this was the fact, then I just go what, where the evidence leads me. I, as I said, I don't have a dog in this fight and I just want the best for my patients and I want the best for people's health and I want the truth. That's really what I'm, what I'm after. And um, the literature that I've looked at as it stands, it doesn't show that effect. Um, so I, I think for us to move forward, you're right, we do need to have these additional experiments done. But until such time, 
um, I wouldn't feel comfortable saying the mold is, <clears throat> excuse me, the cause of illness. Um, we have this, and I think we've already agreed on this point. We have this common um, denominating factor, which is the dampness and and the toxins, and we know that uh, these both of these things cause illness. So again, for us to then say it's definitely the the mold, I wouldn't feel comfortable saying that because if someone said to me, "Can well, you?" Here's a way to get claim, comfortable about have- it. And it's very simple. We do a, a mold hiatus, an experiment, where we take somebody who's sick and they don't feel they can recover, and we have them go out to a pristine location with none of their possessions and then experimentally bring some of their stuff to wherever they are and find out if it makes them sick. If it does, then you need to trace that back and find out what got on that stuff. And a lot of people become so hypersensitive after doing this experiment, when they go back to their house, they go, Wow, it wasn't just the whole house equally. Here's this particular place that's making me sick, and they point right at it. They go to the spot and they point it out. And of course, you hire a mold inspector and they go, okay, we found a dozen different types of molds there, a few of which are toxin producers. And that's about as far as we we get with this. But we do know by this experiment, which is so easy to do, that it's a driving factor in symptomology. And from a layman's point of view, that qualifies as being causative. Um, but it's not, it's not assessing an independent variable. So there's... It's going as far as we can, narrowing it down to whatever is in that colony. And so far, it looks like we've got a few species of toxic molds that are very consistent in reproducing this effect. Mm. But there could be anything on that object that you're taking away. There could be thousands of things on it. So how Not if we set up the experiment so that uh, we, we limit the variables. Well, maybe... A, um, Another experiment that could be done, and I'm not going to do any of these experiments. I mean, it's not it's not um, where I'm going to be heading with my life <laughs> and my career. Um, so I'm not going to be doing these experiments. But I think an experiment that could be done is to put some healthy animals in a enclosure with some of this mold. Say you put it in a petri dish and you put it in the corner of the room. Or maybe we grow mold on different substrates and we put healthy animals in each of these cages or these enclosures and see um, in what circumstances do they become sick. And this will help us to identify and eliminate certain uh, things that may or may not cause illness and help us to get a better understanding. But until such time as those experiments have been done, um, as I said, I wouldn't feel comfortable uh, making a claim that something causes something else when I don't have any proof for that. Um, and, you know, this kind of, it feels like a case of mistaken identity to me. Um, we're, we're wrongfully attributing blame to the mole. Um, and just by saying that, I'm, I'm, again, not saying that people aren't getting sick when there is an environment that is uh, conducive to mold growth. But in those situations where there's mold growing, as I've already stated, there's um, many other factors which we already know cause illness. Um, so it's very important that we establish which one of those things is the driving factor. Um, and I, I don't know um, who's going to do those experiments or when they're going to be done, but I'll certainly be keeping a close eye on, on the literature as it progresses forward. Well, after uh, 35 years of requests and having doctors decline to perform these experiments, we, we can't really afford to wait. So what we advise is for people to do this mold sabbatical or mold hiatus, do the experiment for themselves, make their own determination. If you had a 
a mold colony grow and you feel that you can point directly at it, take a sample of it. Find out what it is. Take that sample to a pristine location. See if it can reproduce your symptoms. That might not be good enough for doctors, but at least if you do this experiment, you can find out for yourself in a compelling manner that will allow you to make some educated decisions on what you want to do about it. Um, so like the other thing is we need to know how if mold does cause illness, how much exposure? Like, is it the mold spores? Is it the mycotoxins? Um, how much exposure is actually required to become ill? Because what I've read is that people get can inhale up to 10 billion mold spores a day just by living in their natural environment. So if we're already inhaling 10 billion spores a day and not all of us are walking around with mold-related illness, uh, why is that the case? Why can we be exposed to these things on an ongoing daily basis and it not cause an issue? Um, you know, that's another thing for me when I think about determining cause and effect. Well, I can tell you what the theory was back in 1985. There was a flu going around. It was spreading across the United States, a really nasty Asian type of flu. And the people who got sick in these buildings, they had a reactivation of this flu, this virus. So it was a combination of a cytokine storm from this horrible influenza, plus the exposure that did some kind of permanent damage. So if somebody in the same room didn't catch the flu, Maybe they could withstand that exposure. But if you put the flu together with the toxic mold exposure, even in a very short period of time, because we know people who actually went into a building and were sick within hours or days, that it didn't take much. But, you know, as you say, this is what needs study. Yeah, it does. And, you know, just an example of why establishing cause and effect is so important before we blame something as the cause without the evidence. Um, once upon a time, we thought that scurvy was a contagious illness. So sailors would be on ships and they would be falling sick one after another with the exact same symptoms. And in the literature, it was said that this is a contagious virus or illness that spreads throughout the ship. Um, so without the relevant controlled experiments where we could um, evaluate certain individual things and assess them on their individual merits, um, we would never have discovered that the underlying cause of scurvy was vitamin C deficiency. And this holds true for anything where we say there's cause and effect. We have to be able to show and prove that. Um, so maybe I'll ask you, Eric, like how, how can we know that one thing causes another thing? How do we ever come to that conclusion? What's the, the process and the method to be able to say that and draw those conclusions? Well, if you analyze the circumstances under which people got sick, it's kind of self-evident. Um, but there. Once you've been hypersensitized, is this particular mold a driving force in your illness? There again, take a sample of that to a pristine location and find out. Yeah. So as um, as far as the uh, scurvy goes, yeah, in fact, uh, they even thought that it might have something to do with being on dry land, being uh, on dirt. And so sailors would actually jump off the ship and eat a mouthful of dirt. (laughs) So they tried out all kinds of things. They did their own experiments and not all of them worked. So. You know, if we hadn't done these experiments, if we hadn't had a lot of people very interested in solving this problem, it wouldn't have gotten solved. So what what do you look at when you're trying to solve scurvy? So yeah, we think it's a contagious illness. So let's look really hard at the circumstances under which people get this disease. And that's what we're doing in sick buildings. It's like not not all the ships, you know, it's not all the houses, it's some of them. What's different? What are people eating? What are people not eating? What chemicals are present? 
what grew that wasn't there before? Yeah. Yeah. I think for me personally, um, all I can see in the literature is that there's associations and that, and I have looked at many papers and the only papers where they say we know that mold is the cause is just based on observation. And like, that's anti-scientific. Like if we're really honest with ourselves, um, that's, well, all be... science begins with observation. That's your starting point. That's not anti-science. That's the beginning of the process. That's right. But to to say that it's a cause without doing the due diligence and doing those experiments and jumping the gun and put it's like blaming it. It would be like um going to the scene of a crime and seeing some detectives there say it a murder and then blaming the the detectives as the murderers because we haven't done the proper investigations to prove cause and effect, but we're saying that there's a cause. So we're attributing blame without the sufficient evidence. Well, it's true that the institutes, our academics, our doctors, aren't really doing the experiments that would be compelling to them, but patients are doing the experiment every day. Every time mold grows in their building, they get sick from it, they're the experiment. From what they do in response to it, either getting out or remediating, lets them know whether it was a driving force in their illness in a cause and effect manner. So we, we feel very comfortable in saying, yeah, the mold grew. It caused my illness. I cleaned up my, the mold. It went away. So let's study the mold because that's what caused the whole problem. Yeah. And as I've said, um, where there's mold, where there's those toxic molds, there's those toxic chemicals. So again, how do we know it's not those? Oh, because uh, of the exclusions. When you have stachybotrys grow in a bunch of different buildings and none of these buildings have any chemical in common, then that leaves the common denominator of the mold. And it turns out that stachybotrys can grow very nicely on eucalyptus and people have become ill just out in a natural setting. Now, eucalyptus is kind of weird in the United States. So when somebody gets sick from eucalyptus, that catches our attention. And there again, we found stachybotrys, certain species, loves loves the rotting bark of eucalyptus. And as far as we can tell, there's no chemicals around. Yeah. I, I would be very interested to see um, where that's been shown because if it's an outdoor setting and there's wind and things and lots of um, other variables and factors, like how are people, are they like standing this far away from the eucalyptus tree and inhaling? Or like, how does that work? Um, Just and walking through a grove. A hypersensitive person can feel it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, now I realize this isn't compelling to a doctor, but you know we can't afford to wait the rest of our lives while they say we've we've got no proof, we've got no evidence, you've only got associations, and none of this can be put to the test anyway because we can't expose humans to controlled studies. Eric, what's your perspective on um, dampness? Do you think that that has a direct um, correlation with illness? Absolutely not. I'm not afraid of saunas. I don't worry about taking a shower. I've never had a problem near a swimming pool. Uh, I've, go, I've been in humid climates. Damp never had any effect on me unless there was a toxic mold present. So I yeah, believe that what's happening with the humidity is something about the chemical processes in the atmosphere is making the mold more bioavailable. And instead of looking for why this particular humid environment is making somebody sick, they blame the humidity. And you know that all the humidity of the world can't be doing this because there's a lot of humid places and everybody would be sick. Yeah. So now if we take the humidity or the dampness 
and we have an enclosed, basically airtight room with very little uh, airflow and there's stagnant air there. And we know that that humidity and that dampness causes the aerosolization of harmful chemicals into the air. Um, would that not indicate that the um, contributing underlying factor was the change in the humidity and the moisture content of the air inside that room? Well, you have to find out what chemical is present. Now, Dr. Thrasher, when he analyzed this housing complex and was blaming formaldehyde, he explained that formaldehyde releases exponentially, geometrically, with increasing temperature. It doesn't just double with an increased temperature, it's geometric. So for every 10 degrees of increase in the warmth of a room, the amount of formaldehyde you're exposed to would go up multiple times, not just double, but many more times. So as a result, <laughs> he was having everybody keep their windows open in the dead of, of winter and trying to reduce the effect of temperature on the formaldehyde exposure, and that did nothing. So in a way, his, the lack of results from the experiment helped convince people, maybe we not need to look somewhere else. You know, Dr. Thrasher doesn't quite have a handle on this, so they bailed out of the uh, chemical theory and went with the mold guy, and it turned out to be mold. Hmm. Yeah, I just find it interesting that we we blame Mother Nature for what I believe are our mistakes. Um, it's, blame it's Mother almost Nature? A, yeah, we're blaming Mother Nature. Oh, I, I never blame natural mold. My story is in Dr. Shoemaker's books, Mold Warriors and uh, Surviving Mold. Okay. And I've explained flame retardants. Can we just go on that point? So if natural mold doesn't cause disease um, and pathogenic mold does, why? what makes the some mold pathogenic and other molds not? Well, Are they, they born that way? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. Not all molds are created equal, and the trichothecene producers are extremely potent. That's why they've been used as biological warfare agents. But um, why is mold doing this now? My initial theory was that it was processing chemicals into supertoxins, but it wasn't just one particular chemical. Over time, the variety of exposures of various, the combinations of various chemicals suggested that mold has somewhat of a window opener effect. It uh, opens up a, a vulnerability that wouldn't otherwise exist for reasons unknown. And maybe that extends to other types of molds that in combination with the chemical, it's, it's just plain bad. But because the stachybotrys has powerful toxins of its own accord, and this is the one people pointed at more often, it seemed to be the easiest way to find answers. Look at the most egregious example. Um, so another question, Eric, as well for you is, so these trichocethene toxins, are they dependent? Is their production dependent on any other factors? Or does the mold just grow and it just produces these toxins willy-nilly? It just produces it without any other um, variable present. It needs cellulose. If it, um, mold can grow on various uh, types of substrate, but if it doesn't have cellulose, it can't produce toxins. And so can it produce more toxins in certain situations than others? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And so what would some of those situations be? Like where, in what instance would it produce more or less? Well, the more water, the more toxins. They found that if they grow it in marginal conditions where it just barely gets enough water, it may look like it's growing a healthy mold colony, but that wasn't quite enough to produce the most powerful toxins. Yeah. So the reasons why I'm asking this question is because um, I have found a paper 
where they exposed animals to mycotoxins. But the way that they exposed it was that they grew uh, so-called pathogenic mold in a petri dish and gave it, they grew it on different culture mediums. And depending on the culture medium that they grew it on would de- depend or determine uh, the amount of mycotoxins being produced. Like in some instances, like one pathogenic mold, depending on what it was fed, would produce, say, upwards of 300 milligrams per liter of these mycotoxins. And if you slightly change the growth medium, it would produce basically none. Yeah, so- that's right. Uh, people are selling these Petri dishes to test your house for mold. And it turns out Stachybotrys doesn't like normal agar growth media. It grows yeah. on cornmeal. So, yeah, so in order to, to be... yeah, to stimulate uh, maximum toxin production and really find out what this particular Stachybotrys could do, they couldn't use a normal Petri dish. Yeah. So what they've done in these experiments is that they've um, found out which growth medium, which ingredients or food uh, the, the mold produces the, mice, the most mycotoxins um, in. And then they- Yeah, I believe that's a mold combination. Yeah, they take those mycotoxins and it forms like a crystalline substance. And then what they do is they um, mix it with ethanol to aerosolize it and then spray it into um, the face of a, a mouse. And the mouse gets sick and they say, well, that's proof that the mycotoxin causes illness. But if they used- another culture medium and took that same mycotoxin and sprayed it into the face of the mouse, um, it wouldn't get sick. So the mycotoxin toxicity is dependent on the growth medium and the food that the mold is eating. So that would highlight, wouldn't it, that it's not the mold? And well, it's not just that, but the way the they did the experiment messed up the normal conditions uh, that a natural colony in a normal setting would uh, affect people. These gutation droplets, it's like sap. The, uh, the toxin is, comes out in like a stick, sticky sap that it's very crystalline and it dries out and it shatters. And these crystalline fragments are, get into the air and their size and shape determines whether they can penetrate your lungs. So if you mess with the experiment by dinking with that in any way, you've, you've got invalid results. You haven't reproduced what's normally happening. That's right. So in these instances where they are producing these toxic mycotoxins, they're essentially manipulating the experiment in such a way so that it produces the mycotoxin. Or that it fails to become bioavailable because they didn't disperse it in a natural way. That's right. So we believe that when these uh, gutation droplets break down, the crystallization process turns them into ultrafine particle form. And that's a critical part of what Cheryl Harding has discovered is that part of the structure is just as important as the toxin itself. So when these components break down, it's how they are delivered that's just as important as the toxin. Mm. Yeah, I just find it interesting. Like I feel like I'm so so close to you understanding my point um, that it's really, what I'm basically saying is my premise is that it's not the mold, that it's the environment that it's growing in. So, and we know that we can modify the so-called toxicity of mold depending on where and how it grows. So it's it's that ice cream maker analogy again. Um, so well, we're saying we mold the in the same sense maker? that people with yellow fever or malaria are saying, look at the mosquitoes. Now, it sounds kind of crazy because obviously the resulting disease is not being eaten by mosquitoes, but in order to find it, 
you had to look at the vector. And it appears that in our situation, toxic mold is acting as a toxin and a vector. Keely Severson is passionate and committed to exposing the truth about toxic mold and its effects on the human body. Many mold-injured people are often misdiagnosed with autoimmune conditions, nerve damage, mental illnesses, and other chronic health conditions due to the lack of knowledge about water damage and toxic mold growing in their homes. The crippling effects of toxic mold on the body has destroyed many lives. Been there, done that. When she became a healthcare provider specializing in acupuncture and herbal medicine, it was only then that she truly began to understand the connection between her health and the environment that she was living in. Three years after becoming a licensed care provider, she became incredibly ill. She was suffering from kidney failure, reoccurring UTIs, and various negative mental health symptoms. When she learned that her family had been dwelling with mold trapped under her kitchen floor, the relationship between the toxic mold factor and her health finally began to make sense. It became part of her life's mission to help educate society on the extreme effects that mold can have on the body. Her work is vital because there exists a lack of experience and acknowledgement for mainstream medical practitioners and even mold experts. She has firsthand experience dealing with mold exposure, and she makes sure to address all the signs and symptoms during every environmental screening that she performs. She's developed a line of organic herbal tinctures and formulas to help most patients reduce symptoms commonly associated with toxic mold exposures. These symptoms vary and can manifest themselves very differently from person to person. Her herbal education and experience has helped her increase awareness and recognize signs in patients that may result from their toxic environments. Keely's dedication to learning and understanding the effects of toxic mold and educating and bringing awareness to her patients and other providers keep her motivated. She knows just how devastating the untreated consequences can be on your health and the health of your families, relationships, and life outcomes. If you or someone you know may be affected by toxic mold exposure, rest assured that you and Keely will work together to find a solution. By working together to treat the symptoms and stay educated on toxic mold exposures, we can reduce the impact of this devastating phenomenon. To consult with Keely, please visit exposingmold.com slash consultations. That's exposingmold.com slash C-O-N. S-U-L-T-A-T-I-O-N-S. Book your appointment today. So there was a paper that you may or may not be aware of that I found. I'm just trying to find the paper. It might take me a while. Um, so I've got a whole presentation here that I've given previously, and I've, I've got all the references there. But I found this paper, and they basically said that in order, like mycotoxins, they say, um, don't aerosolize. So there needs to be something that carries them from the mold. If the mycotoxin does cause illness, um, it needs to be carried from the mold to the host. It doesn't just aerosolize from the mold and go into the air and then we breathe in it or we're exposed to it. So it needs to be taken from the mold spores or by the mold spores from the mold to the host. And this paper that I found, um, they said that the amount of mold spores that they find in damaged, water damaged buildings aren't enough um, for sufficient exposure to micro, mycotoxins to induce illness. Yeah, that's a holdover back from the days when they thought that the toxins were 
totally contained within the spores, and that would be the source of exposure, whether or not you have airborne spores. Well, that didn't fit people's illness because they didn't find, as you say, sufficient volume of spores to cause some kind of illness, but people were getting sick anyway. Mm. So then they discovered the gutation droplets, which, by the way, are just the purified sap, the purified toxin, so there's no DNA. So the PCR methods that they're using to detect molds are missing the fragments, these microparticle fragments, which are floating all around and making people sick because their extremely small size gives them the ability to bypass our lungs' defenses and get into the blood and brain. So Dr. David Strauss found that when he concentrated toxins and by ignoring spore measurements or even fragments measurements, but what he could measure by concentrating all the air within a, a volume, say a room, concentrating it to the point where they could measure it, he found that indeed these toxins were present in the air. So part of what's going on is they're missing the way these toxins are in the environment, but they don't have the methods that will enable them to detect them. And the fact that in their microparticle size, they're not obeying like a piece of dust that's going to be trapped in your lungs and stop. Your protection has been defeated by its ultra small size. So it's getting directly into the blood, stimulating the microglia in the brain. And once you've got your T cells and your B cells and your immune systems system primed for an over-response to this toxin, it's no longer a matter of dosage. From that point on, it's like a peanut reactivity. Microscopic amounts, a few molecules will set this cascade in motion. And like, where has that been shown? <laughs> um, it's being shown by the anecdotal evidence of massive brain inflammation in people in moldy buildings. Now, as far as the methods of being able to show a direct exposure and the result, they can't do that because that would involve putting humans into harm's way. So they won't. Can they do it with an animal? Um, I don't know if this has been done with animals yet. I um, believe that Cheryl okay. Harding did. I, I think that's kind of what she was getting at when she was talking about uh, her animal model shows that it is resulting in this kind of illness. And I'd have to look at that experiment that she's done to see how was the mold grown? Because so you know you're talking about these droplets. Um, is there toxicity dependent on the growth medium of the mold? Yes. Eric, didn't okay. uh, Cheryl Harding derive her her examples from or her samples from Door Dearborn from the homes in Cleveland? She said that's where she got her. She said she got samples, but I don't know if she actually used those in her testing. Got it. Yeah, because I was curious to know too, like. She said that Dearborn had provided her samples from the Cleveland incident death. Yeah, I know that she got materials from it, but I don't know if that actually went into any particular experiment. Mm. Now, our point of view is that people are getting sick at such an incredible rate from this exposure that while we understand that the necessity of science to be cautious, at the same time, this is a little too cautious when so many people are reproducing this experiment over and over again. And there's something about the methods of science that haven't caught up to our experience in being able to detect it and convey this to the academic mind. So, Eric, um, you, so we're sort of on the same page there. The, the um, toxicity of that toxin being produced is dependent on the growth medium. Yeah. Are we in yeah. agreement with that? Mm-hmm. So if I had a house that um, grew mold 
but the growth medium, say the walls were made of something else, right? And there wasn't a toxin being produced, but the mold was still there and I'm not sick. That shows that the mold didn't cause the illness, right? Just the, the mere presence of the mold wasn't the causative factor. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. There've been many examples of stachybotrys that didn't cause illness. We uh, just did an interview with um, a British inspector, Jeff Charlton, and he talked about a building that was loaded with stachybotrys and it mm. didn't seem to be making anybody sick. So then the reason why it would make people sick is dependent on the growth medium. Yep. Yep. And that's exactly what I'm saying. You're right. That's exactly I, what I I'm even, saying. Is yeah, the, I, I, it's the growth medium that's called that is the causative factor. And rather than blaming the mold, because you just gave an example there of the mold being present. So we could go and remediate that mold and it's not going to have any beneficial outcome. But if someone was living in that environment and they got sick, but it wasn't the mold, there's something else making them ill. So we could, if someone was in that situation, they would point to the mold, right? And say, oh, it was definitely the mold that made me sick. So how do we know in instances where people said, oh, I had mold, that it wasn't a situation as you've just described. Can you well, see where that's I'm why we have to there? study it. But remember, growth medium also means water. Yes. So there, stuff can come in on the water and feed the mold. And we're talking about all kinds of potential interactions there. Yeah. But in order to find it, we have to get our foot in the door by saying, there's the mold that it's making us sick. Now let's study what chemicals are present, what's in the water that's feeding this mold, why it's doing this. And we can't get past this blockade of people going, we have no evidence showing that mold is capable of causing this kind of illness. Yeah. So, I mean, to say that mold would cause illness, it would have to do it in every single situation. If we're going to oh, say- not at all. Well, then that, that, that oh, no. just you, means that it's not you, the mold. You wouldn't, you wouldn't <laughs> say that for any pathogen. No, I mean, no. There, there are even people who resist to HIV. Yeah. So, um, no, you can't argue that it must make everybody sick in every situation because there's virtually no illness in science that uh, adheres to that standard. Um, so if we, say, asked someone to stand in a busy highway and they got hit by a car, they would get hurt, right? Would there be a situation <laughs> where someone gets hit by a car speeding on a freeway and they don't become hurt? Like, I don't think that that would ever occur. So we would say that in that situation, getting hit by a speeding car causes massive trauma. Um, but if there were instances where people were walking out into a highway and getting hit by speeding cars and they weren't getting hurt, well, why? Why are those people not getting They damaged? dodged the bullet. The car didn't hit them. Now, if you look <laughs> at stachybotrys, uh, it's a protein synthesis inhibitor. It shuts off cellular machinery, which is vital to your function. So, I mean, it's very important that your cells need to go through mitosis, divide, reproduce, make more new healthy cells. And if they can't do that, eventually you're going to wind up with a problem. And these trichothecenes, that's exactly what they do. Now, if you have a slight inhibition protein synthesis, that in and of itself isn't going to result in a disease, but it will definitely leave you open to all kinds of other things. So maybe your yeah. immune system got derailed and then you started having a problem with other chemicals, other infections and viruses. And we know that the protein synthesis of trichothecenes and atronones takes place in a test tube. So it probably would qualify as something that would affect everybody who's exposed because in the test tube, it certainly does. Yeah, I also um, have 
many issues with test tube and in vitro experiments um, because they don't really reflect what's going on in reality. Um, a no, they don't, but if it shuts off protein synthesis every time, then you've got a good indication that it's actually capable of doing it. But have they shown this in a, a living animal where they've exposed it to mold in, an, in a natural setting that is um, the same as what you would find in nature somewhere in someone's house in reality? Well, it's obviously not the same experiment as doing it in a test tube, but when we find the same immunological shutdown, the same low natural killer cell function, and the same protein synthesis inhibition in people who are in moldy buildings, we can kind of guess that, well, it's the same mechanism in the body that's happening in the test tube. And it's in response to this particular agent, we can connect the dots here. Mm. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. Um, but yeah, when I hear words like guessing and association, like for me, it's not enough. Um, I, I need to see evidence of causation. Um, and that's how we prove things in the world. Like it would be saying, um, we see rain and we know that people get wet when it rains. And I don't, I, I don't claim that people don't get wet when it rains. Um, but someone might say, well, the rain is caused by, um, I don't know, unicorns in the sky urinating everywhere. <laughs> and I'll say, well, uh, I don't believe that because I've never seen a unicorn. And I've never seen rain being formed that way. But they keep telling me that it is without any proof. Um, that's why it's very difficult for me to believe, believe something um, if I can't see a cause and effect being, being shown somewhere. I think it's really important for, for people to be able to understand that association or seeing an effect, the rain, doesn't prove the cause. Well, that's where the academic mind has held the line for the last 35 years. People get sick and they find this toxic mold. And so far, no amount of anecdotal stories seems to be sufficient to get them to say, it's all anecdotal. It's just an association. All you've got are stories in the newspaper. Mm -hmm. So um, what would you say to that one controlled trial that I did find where they were unable to make people ill? Like they're the, they're the types of trials and experiments that we do need. So what if more of those were done and they found the same results? Well, I'd have to analyze their methods. I think that the way they did the experiment altered the result. It wasn't a natural, normal experiment the way that uh, Dr. Strauss did it by just taking a room full of stachybotrys and um, concentrating the toxins. I mean, that's what you need to do to find out that, yes, the substance is there. This is the stuff that's consistent with the illness. And we find that these guttation droplets, these microfragments, they are present. They are at least theoretically capable of penetrating through the lungs because of their very small size. Which so, are dependent on the substrate and what it's eating. It's dependent on its food source. And, and that too, yeah. And yeah. as far as the associated chemicals, yeah, you have to take that into account too, because I have no doubt that the formaldehyde was playing a role in the sickness of the people in this housing complex. But it's really curious that the newspaper reporter who came to do the story, she just walked up to the location and became ill. She didn't even go in. She just went to the uh, manager's office where she was doing an interview with some of the people who were made sick by this place. And just as she approached this location, she reported symptoms. Well, this wasn't consistent with the formaldehyde, not by her standards, not by anybody else, but it's very consistent with mold because it gets out into the air. And something about the combination of the wafting fumes 
these VOCs from chemicals in combination with the mold causes hypersensitive people to complain like this all the time. Even if we can show that those chemicals by themselves have the exact same effect? Dr. Thrasher was unable to do so. That's why he abandoned formaldehyde and moved into mold. Yeah, but I have actual experiments where they've exposed people to these things in controlled settings and they befall ill with these so-called um, mold-related illness symptoms. That's why he was so convinced of his chemical hypothesis, because under those conditions of high exposure, it does cause illness. So as far as he was concerned, cause effect, problem solved, that was his thesis. It wasn't until he saw the exclusion of people who didn't fit his model that he realized he needed to open his mind and keep looking for something else. Hmm. And there's, as you mentioned before, there's um, times where mold is present and people don't get sick. So that puts a hole in the theory. And to show that something caught, like saying- Well, there's times when stachybotrys could be producing every toxin uh, that it's capable of producing and it doesn't make people sick. And apparently we have very good defenses against spores. It's a macromolecule. It's large. Our lungs are designed to catch and trap and remove macromolecules. That wasn't the problem. It has to be in the microfragment form or it doesn't get into the blood. So there again, to the mind of a scientist, as far as they were concerned, case closed, our complaints were disproven. But if you look a little bit deeper and look for another mechanism, then it shows up that, yes, it's very possible. Mm. Yeah, look, I'd have to look at these things that you're you're talking about. Um, So if you could send them to me, I'd be happy to read them. Um, But I would be very surprised if it shows cause and effect, because if it did, I probably wouldn't be having this conversation with you guys. (laughs) Well, how, how many people need to complain of an association before you go, maybe we need to take a deeper look at this? That's right. And, and we definitely need to. We need to take a deeper look. And until such time as we've taken that deeper look, as I've already mentioned, I wouldn't be com- com- confident or comfortable saying that the mold is the cause because I'd be jumping the gun. And I would hate to be pointing my finger at something that I have no proof of being the cause for. And then in a year's time, a paper comes out and proves me wrong. And then I have to recant everything I've said. Um, so I'm watching and waiting until I make my mind up about that. I don't want to um, wrongly accuse mold as I wouldn't want to wrongly accuse someone in real life of committing a crime that they may not have committed without the right evidence. I don't want to jump the gun. Well, there's times when you kind of have to take that step and jump the gun or you don't make new discoveries. You just stay trapped defending the old literature. But you, you maintain that you have that theory, you have that perspective, and then you, the next step in that process is to do the experiment, to prove the hypothesis. And um, to my understanding, those experiments haven't been done yet. We're still in that sort of observation phase, that epidemiological phase, where we're witnessing or observing certain phenomena. Yeah, well, if, let me tell we... you about uh, another little trick about stachybotrys, is that um, they assume that you could expect a chemical inflammatory response, neuroinflammatory response. That's the type of um, chemicals that these trichothecenes are. They expected an overt neurological um, effect. So they fixated on that and they completely overlooked the immune suppressing factors, the protein synthesis. Once they finally realized that not all stachybotrys was resulting, even, even when it's clearly present, not resulting in illness, they did take a deeper look at it 
and they found out that Stachybotrys has an evil twin. Uh, it's completely identical to Stachybotrys. Morphologically, you cannot tell the difference. Under microscope, there's no way to identify this thing. It's only by genetics. But what this evil twin does, it's called Stachybotrys chlorohalonata. It produces purely immunosuppressive compounds with none of the neuroinflammatory ones. So there, was, there wasn't the warning. There wasn't the effect that they were looking for. Instead, all you get is pure immune suppression. So that would result in cancers, in reactivated viruses, but no neurological illness. So this was completely overlooked for many years because of the way they approached Stachybotrys. They anticipated they were looking for a specific neurological, neuroinflammatory effect. And it was the way they went about looking for a specific thing that blinded them that Stachybotrys was also doing something else. So there's times when you have to back up, go to the drawing board and go, if people are getting sick in an unusual way and we can't find any other common denominator but this, this is what we really need to focus on. Yeah, but there are other common denominators there. It's um, not just but the mold. For our, for our purposes, when we talk about mold illness, once we narrow it down, we find a few specific culprits that really stand out for their incredible effects. But how has that and been if we, done? Like, how have you come to that conclusion? We, because we've already said that the presence of those toxic chemicals we know cause a problem. So, where has um, it been shown? Um, where have you differentiated between the effects of both of those things and shown which one causes what? What effect in the body? Well, we haven't got a scientific study that used mass spectrometers to create a perfect environment in a stainless steel chamber and expose humans to known toxic molds that had these particular properties and these particular chemicals, because ethically, we can't do that. But what we can do, as lay people, we can do this. We can go, there are people who got sick in the presence of this particular mold, and we know what it is because we've identified it. We can send it to a laboratory, and they can identify it for us. So we've got people getting sick consistently from this particular mold. And as far as we can tell, there's nothing else in common. There's no other chemical that has to be going along with this. It seems to work in conjunction with different chemicals. And it doesn't matter whether it's pesticide or flame retardant or you know anything. Yeah. But I the, think the, problem the mold the kept showing up thing. as a common denominator. Yeah. And the problem with the whole chemical wrap thing, it's like, so if chemicals were the problem, then why isn't everyone in every city sick or, or dead? I mean, because we're constantly around chemicals. We're constantly around God knows what in our environment, right? Every built environment, every road, every vehicle, everything is completely artificial. Then why isn't everyone sick if it's the chemicals? So um, it's like, in terms of the housing situation, we've talked to so many people globally where this issue is growing. And in every region, the built environment is completely different, completely different materials, whether it's, you know, in Saudi Arabia, we have some reports over there, stone and mud homes. Like that's, that's a natural built environment, right? That's, that's made out of mother nature. Why is this mold showing up here? What's going on? So I I think going round and round with technicality, isn't really going to help people. I think if you're going to be selling webinars and classes and teaching about this and you're positioning yourself as a mold expert for people out there, um, you know, 
if you don't believe this is a real phenomenon, you can easily go buy sheetrock at your local Home Depot or whatever store that you have in your region, put some water in there and grow stachybotrys and expose yourself and see what happens to your own self. I mean, if this is what it takes in order for people to be believed, because so many people are falling ill. And the more that we go round and round with this technicality, like, oh, you know, it's not the mold, but well, if the mold is interacting with our chemical environment and there's some synergism going on here and it's creating some sort of toxicity, then yeah, mold is playing a part in the, in the issue and in people's illnesses. So for me, it's just, um, I don't have the luxury with my own health to sit and wait for scientists to tell me and validate what's going on with me. Like I, I have to take extreme measures and that's what I had to do. And that's what Eric had to do. That's what so many people have to do because we have this issue with researchers and scientists and doctors going round and round and saying, well, this is not plausible. Well, this is not in the literature. So it's not real. We don't have that luxury in our health. If we want to live, like we have to go to these extreme measures and figure out what's going on. And when something affects your life so much to the core that it completely changes your life, you become an expert in that subject. You start figuring out common denominators. You start seeing what's going on. So again, if someone is going to position themselves in teaching classes and webinars and all this stuff, and you haven't experienced this, it's hard for me to get on board with them or believe them because there is a whole other phenomenon happening that can actually easily easily be reproduced by your own self. Like if you don't think stachybotrys is a thing, well, go get some, again, some sheetrock, wet it and sniff it or bring it around your family and we can see what happens. I mean, we don't need to sit here and wait for studies because that are never going to show up because obviously there's no grant money in this for whatever reason. I don't know if it's going to expose some sort of industry, some sort of chemical, you know, it's like there's so much political crap in all of this mess that I think is really hindering a lot of progress and, and a lot of proof in this. So it's like, if you don't believe it, then do your own experiments, figure it out on your own. Um, I would highly suggest against it, but if, if you really want to become a believer, then put yourself in a position where someone who's been made injured by mold has been in. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, um, you know, again, the whole chemical thing, we live in a completely artificial world and not everyone is right. dropping dead. So it's kind of hard to, for me to attribute that, but what I, what I want to get to here is. So how are you helping your patient base? What are you telling your clients? What are you advising them when they point to mold in their home? Are you telling them it's not mold? Yeah, it's not mold. It's a it's chronic ongoing chemical exposure. This is toxicity. This is um, accu- accumulation of toxins. And I also just wanted to say um, in regards to your point there, Alicia, is the research that say a, a cancer scientist or researcher does any less valid because they've never experienced cancer? Absolutely not. But we're in a whole realm and a whole new ball game here where we're getting patient report after patient report of people falling ill and they're pointing to a specific type of mold to sit here and say that we don't have the research backing it up. Um, we're, we're leading people to their deaths and that it's actually pretty negligent. Um, you know, for some reason, people like to look to their superiors for answers, but at this point, it's very clear that there's a lot of people that do not believe what's going on. And if someone can sit here and walk into your room and point and say, this is bothering me, um, I'm going to believe myself and my intuition than someone telling me, trying to give me a technical jargon runaround that 
technically that's not the problem. It's the chemicals, but chemicals are everywhere. So then what do I do? Right. Again, at the end of the day, people's lives are at stake and we're in the running and we're in the game of helping people and saving their lives. And if Eric has been in this for 35 years and has done every experiment, has worked with every expert in the business of this, um, you know, (laughs) and what we're seeing with our patient base is saying, Hey, go and leave your home and then see what's going on. And we see time and time again that, oh yeah, you know, there's something going on in my home and it's this particular species of mold that is making me ill. And now I'm hypersensitive. I think we need to give some validity to that and not just, oh, because it's not in the literature, um, it's not real, right? Mm. Um, And so I think that's really just the point, Harry. I do agree with you that, um, you know, there is something going on in the environment. There's some, we've done so much, stuff to our environment, we've completely polluted our environments, right? I mean, it's like everything is toxic these days. So we just need to see what's going on. What are these microbes doing? Maybe what the microbes are doing is their own form of self-protection and that self-protection is just harming us, right? And so we're not trying to sit here and demonize every microbe, but we're just sitting here and saying, okay, if this is causing problems and all you have to do is just stay away from it, I mean, there's no harm in harm in that, right? I mean, it's not a, a crazy thing to say or advise or or to tell people to do. Um, and once people get to that point of immune system reprogramming, it's like you're forever in this situation where you have to avoid certain environments so that way you can stay healthy. So again, Daniel, we do appreciate you. It's been <laughs> two hours. It was such a great conversation. We loved having you on and uh, we'd love to have you on again in the future if you're up for it. Um, but if anyone wanted to work with you or buy your webinars, classes, listen to your podcast, where can they find you? Yeah, they can go to humanly.com, H-U-M-A-N-L-E-Y.com. Um, mm-hmm. I appreciate you letting me come on and share my perspective here. And I hope that when people hear this, they don't take my word for it. I hope that they go and research themselves and they read widely and they make up their own decision. Because if we are wrongly attributing the cause here and we're barking up the wrong tree, um, people aren't going to get to the bottom of the problem and they're not going to get to sure. not going to get the answers that they deserve. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, certainly in my clinic, I have helped people with this and I haven't taken the approach of trying to get rid of the mold mm-hmm. or or these types of things, it's more focused around supporting the entire body and supporting the organs of elimination and making sure people have the right nutrition mm-hmm. and addressing various other aspects in, of their diet and lifestyle um, so that their body can heal itself. Um, I don't go after one certain thing. And um, yeah, it's not, it's not a hunt for mold when I'm um, dealing with patients. So mm-hmm. yeah, and people get better. The body okay. has an amazing capacity to heal itself from anything, I believe. It just needs to be given some uh, specific things that are essential to life. And then we get out of the way and let the body do the rest. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, thank you very much for the opportunity to come and speak to you. I really appreciate it. Yes, we, we definitely 100% agree on that. Avoidance is um, a big proponent of what we preach. We don't push any pills or any special diets or supplements. We do agree that the body has the ability to heal itself once it has the proper environment. So again, Daniel, we do appreciate you. Eric, thanks for being such a sport. You too. We're going head to head and I really do appreciate the open dialogue. This is what we need more. See, I we're not that scary, right, Daniel? 
I wasn't scared at all. We're not that scary. <laughs> I feel like people are scared of us because we're we're a little fringe. We we really try to push people off the edge here to to think about mold and and just environmental illness in general in a different scope. So thanks again, and uh, everyone listening. We'll see you next time. Bye.